All right, let's pray together again, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word and that you have made yourself known to us through it. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us understand these verses and apply them to our lives, that you would change us and change our hearts by this time with you and your word. God, you tell us that uh, you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us be humble this morning before you to receive your word and receive what it is you have for us. We pray for your help and ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come and guide and teach us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, hey, once again, good morning and and welcome to FBC or welcome to FBC online. If you're tuning in on the live stream, we're glad that you all are here. And I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. It's the passage that uh, Darren just read for us, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to set this over here for a moment, starting in verse one, this is a week three of our sermon series, Gospel-Shaped Relationships, where we have been talking about how the gospel, how the good news about Jesus should shape and form and transform our relationships. See, we don't believe that the gospel is just something for later, right? A message that gets us to heaven, gets us eternal life one day. It certainly does that, but we want to talk about how the gospel changes how we live today and how the good news about Jesus uh, changes every interaction that we have in the present. And so that's what we've been exploring. We talked about uh, our relationship with God. We talked about our relationship uh, with ourselves last week. And this morning, we're going to talk about uh, our relationships with other people. Okay, we're going to start to go from the vertical to the more horizontal approach and talk in broad strokes about our posture towards other people. And let me just warn you, this is where things get a little tricky, where really the rubber meets the road. Because when we talk about our relationship with God and your relationship with yourself, I mean, a lot of that is unseen and it's maybe easier to fool people, right? But you can say things that sound good about your relationship with God and it's sometimes hard for us to really know what uh, is true or not. But when we talk about our relationships with other people, a lot of that is, is visible, right? It's harder to hide those interactions. People know how we treat them. And let me just be honest as well that, that this sermon, I think so far maybe is the most challenging one uh, for me to preach personally because it's so difficult to live out. The, the principles that we're talking about this morning are so hard for us. And I've been just faced with my own failures in the area of uh, loving other people and treating other people in the way we're going to talk about this morning. And so um, if you're convicted this morning by the things that we look at, know that you are not alone. Because in my prep this week, I was just convicted by, by the spirit of how I have failed in this way. So 
Here we go. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to jump in and see how God calls us to interact with other people. If you're not familiar with the book of Philippians, uh, the author is the Apostle Paul. It's written in the middle of the first century. Paul, again, used to uh, be a, a man who persecuted the church and wanted to, to put prison, uh, excuse me, put Christians in prison. And then he had this radical encounter with the risen Jesus, and he became a follower of Jesus and one of the, the key leaders in the early church, planting churches around the ancient world. And here, the book of Philippians is uh, his letter written to his dear friends, the church, the Christians in the city of Philippi. And you see how he starts chapter 2 with this call to unity. Look at it. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, he writes in the text here, says, if, a number of times, if you have this, if this has happened. But know that the text here is not uncertain. Really, it carries more the idea of sense. He's reminding them of what is true about them. So, since you have been united with Christ, since you have been comforted from his love, since you are recipients of the Spirit, this is true of you. God has done this radical, transforming work in your heart through the gospel. Then, in light of that, verse 2, here's how you are to live. Being like-minded, sharing this love, being in one spirit. And see, this speaks to kind of the, uh, the context and the issues that the Philippian church was facing. Yes, there was pressure from the outside, threats and persecution, but they were also facing dysfunction within. People were selfish and quarrelsome. The church was becoming fragmented. Different factions were forming and interest groups. People were seeking their own glory and honor and recognition at the expense of others. People were selfish. So they were dealing with all kinds of problems that you and I cannot relate to at all. Thank you to those of you that laughed. Of course we can relate to these concerns in the church. Right? And then he goes on. He wants to get specific about how they can counter these selfish ways. He says, verse 3, So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Okay, so when he lists some specific ways, he is calling the church to interact and to treat one another. But before we talk about those specifics and kind of unpack verses 3 and 4 here, I want to just point out this simple observation. It's right on the surface of the text for us to see, but it's worth mentioning in detail. Notice, the Bible has a lot to say about how we treat one another. Can we just start with that simple observation? God, in his word, has a lot to say about how we, as his people, treat one another. We need to notice this because 
there's a lot of talk in this letter about the message of the gospel and preserving the content of the gospel. Chapter 1, if, if you go back and, and look at it, you'll see Paul's talking about the advance of the gospel and the message of the gospel going forth and holding firm to the gospel, right? This message of Christ crucified, this doctrine of justification by faith, all these core doctrines of Scripture in the New Testament that we see unfolded, he's calling the church to, to hold to them, not to water them down or drift from them. And we certainly should care about that cause. We are people who hold firm to the content of the gospel message, absolutely. And at the same time, you see in the text that Paul has a deep concern that also the culture of the gospel is preserved. Right? That, that how we treat one another and love one another and show grace to one another would be lived out. Right? So Paul is concerned that both the content of the gospel is preserved and the culture of the gospel is preserved. What we believe and what we teach and proclaim and how we live and how we treat one another. Let me put it this way. We can teach a message of grace from up front. But if we don't live out a culture of grace, people are going to know. And we can teach a message of grace and love and teach really articulate, clear gospel doctrine from up front. But if we don't live it out in our relationships, love and grace and mercy and so on, then we're going to contradict the beautiful gospel truths that we claim to believe. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp uh, writes about a, a similar situation with a man that he was counseling, a man who had tremendous theological knowledge. I mean, his doctrine was airtight. But notice what Paul David Tripp says about this man. He says the reason he needed counsel was that there was a huge dysfunction-producing gap between what he knew so well and the way he lived. He says his marriage was crumbling. None of his children respected him. His friends found him more than hard to handle. In his home, the master of the theology of God's grace was a man of ungrace. He was known more for impatient criticism than patient mercy. He could exegete and explain the doctrine of God's sovereignty, but in the situations and relationships of his daily life, he had to be the one in control. He had an airtight Christology. But unlike Christ, he did not love well, serve well, or forgive well. To say that there was a contrast between the gorgeous theology he had spent so much time studying and the way he lived would surely be an understatement. And so friends, as the people of God, we need to be deeply concerned to preserve gospel content and gospel culture. They cannot be separated. And so Paul calls them to this and he speaks of specifics in verse 3 of what they are to do. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, it says, or, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. 
So he says the first step in this is that we need to say no to selfishness, to selfish ambition, it says, to seeking our own honor and glory, to vain conceit, vain comparison, jealousy. Paul identifies these heart attitudes as destroyers of unity. See, likely in the Philippian church, they were facing, again, persecution. And then within, because of this external pressure, there was bickering and selfishness and pride, ego wars. And so Paul is addressing this and saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And we wrestle with this still today because really selfishness is at the heart of sin, right? In our sin, we turn from God and we turn towards ourselves. We want to be our own king and Lord and Savior and do things our own way. And we stop really caring as much about what God has to say or what other people need. And it really becomes all about us. I mean, do you remember the great toilet paper shortage of 2020? We all lived through it. We're going to tell our kids and grandkids one day, like, you guys want to believe it. Trust me, this happened. People were, do you remember though? Maybe you experienced this. You're like, people were in the store stockpiling their carts. I mean, stores had to put limits on the number of toilet paper things you could buy. There were videos online of people with like their carts full of toilet paper. And then other people, right, maybe you saw the videos, running up and grabbing someone else's toilet paper because they needed it and that other person had too much. And there were fights in the store, like fist fights, and people were tackling and yelling at each other all over toilet paper because one person was like, I need all of this, and the other person was, I'm desperate, I need more of that. And there was fighting and selfishness on display. It was wild. We all lived through it. You see, when we get pressed, human nature is to become selfish, or I should say our selfishness is put on display. But the same sort of thing happens everywhere, right? It happens in the church when we fight to make, you know, our own ministries or our own platform. Uh, We want to make sure that we get the attention or our, our ministry gets the resources that it deserves, or we want our recognition. We want to be noticed. We want our ego to be boosted. Or when at home, we kind of subtly keep score in our minds between us and our spouse and look at all the things I'm doing and I'm not sure they're doing enough and I'm definitely you know, putting in more than they are and that my needs aren't getting met, but theirs are and we grow bitter because we're focused on ourselves. And so Paul calls us to humility and focusing on the needs of other people. And just so you know, this wasn't, again, easy for them back then. It's not as if, well, this was really, you know, people were good at this back then and now we're just really bad at it. But no, it's always been an issue. Humility and being others focused in the ancient world was just as much a problem as it is today. Because the sinful human heart hasn't changed. And actually, in the ancient world, like culturally speaking, humility and deferring to others was seen as weakness, right? And in the ancient world, you, you competed for, for honor. You wanted to be seen as strong. You wanted to win. And so if you were to be humble and defer to others and honor others above yourselves, I mean, that often looked like weakness. And that's often very much how the world still functions today. Right? We don't want to be seen as weak. We want to make sure that we look out for number one. We look after ourselves and our tribe and compete for resources and honor. And our culture of consumerism doesn't help because we're shaped from an early age to think that everything's about us and getting what we want. We're conditioned this way then. But Paul shows us as the people of God, there's another way. 
He says, I want you in humility, the text says, to value others, to look to the interests of others, see their needs. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, if you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't be struck by how humble they are. You'd be struck by how much they seemed interested in you. It's a true humility. It's not just like the attention and the spotlight stays on me and how humble I am or how lowly I am or let's just, let's just keep talking about me and looking at me. True humility is just looking away from yourself to the person in front of you, asking questions about them, caring about them, how they're doing, what they're interested in, learning about them. Or, or you maybe you've heard the famous C.S. Lewis quote that humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Again, same idea. In humility, I'm going to turn away from myself in just this constant uh, drive to make everything about me and connected to me. I'm going to look at the person in front of me instead. I think we all know, we've seen this on display, right? When someone uh, talks about themselves too much and won't stop talking about themselves. And if you're like, I don't know if I know anyone like that, then you're probably the person that is doing that. But Paul says, hey, stop it. He says, I want you to pay more attention to the person in front of you than than yourself, than your own needs. In humility, value other people and their interests and concerns above yourself. Don't just think about you. And it's not that you you don't, you know, care for yourself or have like healthy boundaries or you're just a doormat and do, you know, do what everyone else wants you to do. I'm not saying that, but but we should not be so self-focused that really our agenda and our preferences set the tone for what we pursue. And isn't this really, if you think about it, really the essence of love, right? If we're talking about valuing other people above yourselves, looking to the interests and concerns of other people, isn't that what it means to love someone? If we had to define love, it's caring for and working for the good of another people, even if it's costly to you. So really, Paul is just teaching us to love one another, to love people. The Lord Jesus said, right, the, the most important command to summarize all of the law was what? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So there's this, this, this fundamental posture for us as followers of Jesus, to be others-focused, to love people and look to their interests above our own. And so I ask you, what, what would it look like in your life to live this out? to truly look to the interests and concerns of others and and not just your own. May I suggest a a few ways forward with this? One would be we we could work on becoming better listeners. We could work on becoming better listeners. Because if we want to value and care for the interests of others, we have to know the interests of others. And in order to know the interests of others, we need to listen to others. Right? But, but how often do we, instead of truly listening to people, we just are waiting for our turn to speak? You know, or we're like planning out our response while they're speaking. So we're thinking about what we're going to say. And we're not actually listening to what the other person in front of us is saying. I know that I'm guilty of that. 
And so what if we learned to, to listen and, and sought to understand the person in front of us and their needs and not just make assumptions about them or assume that we know, but truly seek to know? Or how often think about this, do we only seek to listen to the people who are like us? Right? Like we, we listen, we know maybe the needs or interests of people in our kind of demographic. If we're single, then like what single people need and want. And so the church needs to pay more attention to that. Or if we're married and have young kids, you know, how is this church meeting the needs of me and my marriage and my young family? Or if I'm, you know, part of the older generation, well, how is this church meeting the needs of, of me and my, my older peers or so on? People who, who look like me and think like me, but not always listening to the concerns of people that we don't relate with. So maybe we can become better listeners. Maybe another step forward is to simply practice being with people. It's hard to love people and care for them uh, if we don't know them and enter their world and spend time with them. And even within the church, don't we tend to gravitate towards people who, who look like us, who think like us, who vote like us? Right? Political division is rampant. There's racial division rampant in our world today. And it's easy to kind of throw stones at the other, right, from a distance. Keep people at arm's length and make assumptions about who people are rather than than truly being with them. I don't know who coined this phrase, but they said proximity breeds empathy, where distance breeds suspicion. Isn't that true? Often distance breeds suspicion. That's a real challenge today because we're a disconnected culture. We have all this technology, social media, to help us communicate and stay connected. And yet research has shown over the last few decades our ability to actually emotionally connect with people and understand others has dramatically declined. So we need to start by becoming better listeners Practice actually being with people. And let me just say, it's not all bad. I don't, I don't want this to come off like just, just all conviction and you guys are just terrible at this because the reality is you, some of you are, just, are, are some of the most generous people I've ever known. And, right, and you all could probably look around this room and see the examples of love and generosity and charity that, that you have experienced at the hands of some of the people in this room. So I think we've seen the beauty of this on display Absolutely, and should celebrate that. But at the same time, we personally and together at times wrestle with actually living this out. And so in the text, there's this great call to love in our relationships with other people, uh, being others-focused, caring for them. But, but what comes next, what I want you to see, and we already heard Darren read it a minute ago, is really the key to this whole passage. How does Paul motivate the Philippian church to live this way? So we have this invitation, this call to love and being others focused, but, but how are we going to be motivated to actually do that? How does Paul reinforce the command? Look what he does in verse 5. <clears throat> he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to follow the example of Jesus. Right, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. He modeled this for us. And then Paul launches into one of the most famous uh, passages in the New Testament about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. This extended text about Jesus. Look what it says. Verse 6, we see some of the clearest, highest, uh, biggest claims about the deity of Christ. Right? Paul says this Jesus was what? In very nature God. The morphe of God, there's the word. The form of God, the essence of God. He, he looked like God. He was treated like God. He was and is God. And friends, this is one of the key, I mean, central, non-negotiable doctrines of Scripture and Christianity that Jesus Christ is God himself. That God the Son has eternally existed. That Jesus Christ is one with the Father and the Spirit. We worship one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see it in the text, right? This isn't something that I'm making up or that you know, the church later made up. We see in these early writings of the church that Jesus is Lord, being in very nature God. But here in this passage, we see what this Jesus, what our God is like, don't we? What his heart is like. Because it says, what, that Jesus did not consider his status as God as something to be used to his own advantage. More literally, the Greek reads, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped in the sense of clinging to it, holding on to it. Insisting upon, he didn't insist on his right to be worshipped and adored and safe in heaven. I am God and so I can stay safe and comfortable in heaven. Because our God is not a grasping God, but he's a giving God. And Jesus showed us that by, by coming to us, verse 7, rather... Rather than using his status as God to remain comfortable and using it to his own advantage, verse 7, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That the Son of God went from very nature God to the very nature of a servant. Do you see the parallel? Rather than looking out for his own interest, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself and became human. Not emptying himself of his divine attributes of, of being God, but he came and he emptied himself of his privilege, his position. And he took on human flesh and human likeness and walked among us. This is the doctrine of the incarnation, right? What we celebrate every year at Christmas. God in the flesh. God with us. Jesus taking on flesh. Jesus fully God and fully man. And so friends, our minds can't really comprehend the level of humility and condescension that this would mean. Think about it. The eternal creator God, the uncreated one, would stoop so low to enter our world as a creature taking on human likeness. The God who created the seas and the dry land would walk upon the dry land and sail upon the sea and walk upon the sea. 
And it's not just that he came as a human. But notice the kind of human he came as. How he came, verse 7, as a servant, it says. As, as the, the lowest of the low. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us that the king of glory did not come as a human being in uh, great royalty and, and power. Coming to the capital city of Jerusalem and, and the palace there with great influence. No, he walked on the scene. He came on the scene, I should say, as a baby in a manger. Born to an unwed mother from Nazareth, surrounded by suspicion and scandal. But the humiliation did not stop there, right? Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, this would be as, as low as it could get. The ultimate scandal, the death of the holy creator God on a cross reserved for slaves and criminals. That's what the cross was. It was a symbol of shame. And so this Jesus that we worship and call Lord was crucified by the state as a criminal at the hands of Caesar. Do you see the trajectory of Paul's thought? Though in the form of God, though God himself, he did not count equality with God something to cling to to grasp onto, to use for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. He humbled himself and came as a servant. And he humbled himself even to death on a cross. And yes, he would be exalted, but look at what he endured and why. For us, right? That he would bear our sins and die in our place. And he would not look to his own interests and needs, but to ours, a need for a savior, a need to be forgiven, a need to find new life so that we needy sinners could be healed and forgiven and brought back into the family of God. St. Athanasius put it this way, he became what we are that he might make us what he is sons and daughters of God, for all who would trust in him through faith. And so I want you to see Paul's point here in the text. Do you see the logic of the text that Paul says, I want you to love one another and look to the interests and needs of others, but it's not just a guilt trip. It's not just like you say, just do it, okay? Because God told you to do it, so just be better at loving one another. Please, come on. That's not his approach. Don't you see that he's saying, hey, I want you to love one another because God has loved you. You see the logic? I want you to love and serve one another because that's what God has done for you. So it's not just, hey, do it because God told you to do it, although that would be enough and should be enough on its own. But but God actually showed you what it looks like, and he did this for you. So what you have received, I want you then to go and do likewise to other people. That's the logic and shape of the gospel. We look at what God has done for us, and then we seek to, to live that out in our relationships. And, and friends, this is radically different from a, if you think about a, like a secular framework for ethics or morals. I mean, there's plenty of non-Christian people 
out there that will tell you, yeah, you should be a good person and kind and, you know, take care of other people and don't be so selfish. Like, not just Christians say that sort of thing. But if you think about, well, what's the motivation underneath that outside of a Christian framework? You know, it's kind of like, well, the, the golden rule, something like that, or just, you know, it's, well, that's just what you should do, right? That's, you're just supposed to do that. Of course, everyone, everyone knows that that's just how people are supposed to live. And it's like, well, not really. You know, if you look throughout history, that's not really, like everyone just didn't assume, yeah, we, we treat other people well, we take care of the vulnerable. No, throughout history, it's, hey, if you have power, you use it to your own advantage, right? Go to war with people if you need to, conquer, win, right? That's, there wasn't this like universal view of human rights and ethics. And yet in Christianity, that, there's our motivation, right? Not just, hey, go do it because, well, everyone knows you should do it, but because look at what God has done for you. Look at what Jesus has done for you. And so then, in response to that, we love and serve other people. There's our motivation. And we see the same logic elsewhere in the scriptures. Think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 where we're called to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us, right? Paul is saying the same thing. I want you to forgive each other. Why? Because God forgave you. So how could you withhold forgiveness when you've been forgiven so much? Or think about the same logic of the, uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant in uh, Matthew chapter 18, where there's a servant with a huge debt and the master forgives him, cancels the debt, says, hey, you may go free. And then that same servant, rather than being, you know, joyful and forgiving his own debts, um, he goes and finds this man who owes him very small amount and, you know, chokes him and threatens him and he gets real violent with him. Remember the story? The other servants find out about it. They tell the master and the master comes to that first servant and says what? Hey, bub, listen here. Look at what I forgave you. Look at how much I forgave you. Shouldn't you then go and forgive your brother? And so this is what we mean by gospel-shaped relationships, right? We see the shape of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, his sacrifice and love for us. And then we then are to treat other people in the same way. We are to love and sacrifice for, for others. Anybody here watching The Chosen? A few people. Yeah, we've, Amber and I, are fam- we've been watching The Chosen and have... Uh, loved. I think Andre. I think you were the first person that mentioned the chosen to me. Right on. Um, we we've been loving it, and it's just if you don't know it, it's just retelling of the story of Jesus and his disciples in like a TV show uh, format, and it's done really well, really well done. Uh, we've really enjoyed it. And there's this one episode in season two where most of the episode it's the disciples talking. You don't see Jesus to the very end. And Jesus is basically on this like full day, you know, all these people are coming out to be healed. And so he's just, you know, person after person is healing people and taking care of them. Um, and the disciples are kind of just chatting back at base camp, you know. Uh, and over the course of the day, they start to bicker. And most of the conversation is fine, but then towards the end, they start to argue. And one of them's a tax collector. And so some of them don't like that. And so they start yelling at each other and arguing. And it gets really heated. And right at the very end of the episode, they're yelling at each other, standing up around the fire. And, and then Jesus walks out. And he walks kind of across the campsite. And he goes over to his uh, little tent where he's sleeping. And you could just tell he's just exhausted. I mean, he's just been, been healing and blessing people and meeting with people all day, nonstop. And the disciples see him and they just go silent. 
and see their master walk across and he just basically collapses and goes to sleep. And he, he didn't have to say anything, but all they needed was to see him and to see what he was doing for these people, how he was pouring himself out going to great lengths to care for people. Of course, in their midst, and ultimately we know uh, what he would do on the cross. So we see him just pour himself out. And it was almost as if the disciples saw that. And in that moment, they looked to Jesus and they were like, we look really dumb. They were like, (laughs) in light of that, it's like, we are so petty and selfish and bitter. And, and Jesus didn't need to sit them down and give them a stern talking to, um, although elsewhere he'll do that. Uh, but in this moment, all they needed to see was just to see Jesus and who he was and what he was doing. And that was enough to just change their hearts, to change their perspective. And friends, I think that's just so often what we deeply need. What the Apostle Paul says here in, in verses five and on do you, would you just look to Jesus? And would you model your relationships after him? Look at how much he has done for you. You then go and do the same. And so friends, as we think about this, I want you to think specifically about your relationships and how they can be more shaped by the gospel. In the context of Philippians 2, how you can look to the interests and concerns and needs of other people. And I know that in the context here, Paul is talking to the church about how they should conduct themselves uh, with one another, right? Family talk, family business here. And that's absolutely the context. But I see no reason why that same sort of posture of others focused, of love for other people would not extend beyond these walls, right? To everyone that we encounter with, that we would actually give people in our neighborhoods a taste of Christian love. And so, so I ask you, who are the people God's placed in your lives that this would apply to? here or elsewhere. And I ask you to get specific in your mind because sometimes, again, if it's, if it's everyone, it's no one. Right? If it's everyone, we just kind of let ourselves off the hook. We don't get specific in any sort of action towards real people. We say, who specifically has God placed in your life? Maybe it's someone in your home. It's a spouse that you've not really been working very hard to understand or care for, but you've been putting up with. Maybe it's your kids being more thoughtful about their needs. Maybe it's uh, someone in your circle where you live, work, or play. Someone at work, a neighbor, a parent on your soccer team. Maybe it's someone in this room. Someone in our church family where there's maybe a relational strain. There's an invitation here for you to move towards them and seek their needs and care for them well. Maybe it's someone in your life who's just honestly kind of hard to love. But Jesus reminds us, you know, we were pretty hard to love too at one point, and yet Jesus loved us freely. So friends, we're going to end by just encouraging you to consider that, how you can love others well. And then we're also going to take communion. One of the ways that we remember Jesus and look to him is by taking these elements twice a month here at the church that reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice for us. So we take 
the bread and the cup and it reminds us of Jesus' broken body on the cross and his shed blood on the cross for you and for me. Reminds us tangibly of the love of God for us in Christ, which we then can return and share with others. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll take the elements in just a moment. Lord Jesus, we want to look to you now as a church family and thank you that you, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to your advantage, but rather you made yourself nothing. You took the nature of a servant. You took on flesh. And not only did you come to us, but you ultimately went to the cross and died for us sacrificed yourself in our place for our sin so that we could be forgiven. Thank you. We're humbled by your love and grace. So we take these elements now as your people, as a reminder of who you are, as an act of worship. And I pray that you would just help us be people who display this love to the world. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen.